out of respect for the reading of God's Word, for the speaker, who is God speaking to us through His Word, uh, I am only the reader. So let's uh, now pay attention, pay careful attention to God's inerrant Word. This is Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. And these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. This is God's inerrant word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. Uh, uh, We thank you for these fantastic and bizarre passages. They make the Bible so interesting. (laughs) Uh, But they are bizarre, Lord. They are so foreign to our, our, our enculturation into a disenchanted world, Lord. We believe and we see... Uh, the supernatural as an abstract idea or a scary movie we might see that's somewhere off in the distance but doesn't actually affect us in any real way in real life. And yet the Bible says nothing uh, could be further from the truth. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see uh, the unseen realm, the supernatural reality that interpenetrates our world uh, and what Jesus has done to rescue and save and protect us from that. So we pray that you would show us the beauty of Jesus through this passage, Lord, and uh, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify us, your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. For me, the very best part the very best part of becoming a Christian uh, was right after, right after I became a Christian, like in earnest, I had this overwhelming sense of peace that I'd never had my entire life. I, was, I remember sitting in my car outside of the Rock Church about a week in and thinking to myself, I'm right with God. And I've never been right with God in my entire life life. And it was such a weight off of me, such a powerful weight that came off of me. And I, just, I really felt just overwhelmed with joy, having finally understood the gospel, having you know, the Spirit finally impressed upon me what Christianity was all about, and I was overwhelmed with it. That was, the, that was the very best part of becoming a Christian for me. However, a very close second for me as an ex-punk like rock and heavy metal kid who loves sci-fi and anime movies, uh, is the idea that, we, that, that, what the, that comes along with Christianity and salvation is this whole package worldview reality that the world is literally interpenetrated with these spiritual forces and that we are in the midst of this spirit war of warring angels and demons that are right outside our view. It was the confirmation of the sci-fi supernatural-like world that I always wished existed. Uh, but thought it couldn't be possible, you know? Am I right? You all know what I'm talking about, right? All you anime fans out there, come on. Uh, <laughs> maybe that scares you, but for me, I was like awestruck. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like heavy metal paradise for me. This is awesome. And at the pinnacle, obviously, the high water mark of heavy metal sci-fi supernatural in the Bible is this, the story of Nephilim, the fallen angels, or so the story goes, who come create or procreate with human women to create this super race of hybrid angel-human mutant giants that then roam the, wor- the, roam the earth uh, and devastate creation. I mean, where is the anime movie for this, Right? There's not one. You know why? Because it's so big. 
It's so massive. It's so crazy that any attempt to even portray this in film would just fail miserably. It would just be like utter cheese. It would just, you couldn't possibly recreate this story. It's so crazy. And I love that about it, right? I love that about that idea and that pick and that take, right? And however, right, there are all kinds of dissenting and conflicting voices. Like, what's really going on here? Uh, there's tons of controversy about this passage and all kinds of different opinions about what is really being said here uh, in, in what happened in the world before the flood. And many of them, most of them, uh, and maybe I could say all of them, because all of, our, all of our interpretation of the Bible is influenced by our current like cultural worldview. What culturally is within the realm of possibility and what isn't. And so we live uh, in what we're going to talk about uh, is what's been called a, a disenchanted age. Uh, and so where uh, this disenchanted age where supernatural things, we might affirm them to be true, but they're, they're somewhere over there, you know? They don't really affect us in any way. And the world around us disregards them altogether. The idea that there might be you know, warring angels and, and demons interpenetrating our world is just as likely uh, as the fact that we might be, you know, kidnapped by sprites and pixies on our way home from church today. We've, we've moved beyond all that, uh, and we don't really need to talk about it anymore. And that, you know, that zeitgeist, that cultural milieu affects how we look at the text. And so a lot of the, some of the viewpoints are very, influenced by the disenchanted world that we live in and the cultural views that we have. Uh, and yet, to enable to really see the text and understand it to be faithful exegetes, we have to get beyond that, and we have to see how the text was understood by the people who received it. That is a primary uh, rule of biblical interpretation. You can't look at it through our cultural filters, you've got to take those off, you've got to understand the grammar, and then you have to look at it through the filters of the culture that received the text. And in that, you have a faithful translation. And so we're going to do that. We're going to look at this passage from the vantage point of our disenchanted world that we live in. We're going to look at it then from the enchanted world in which it was written and received, and hopefully see how, which lens we use makes a huge difference. At the end, what we're going to get out of this is a simple truth, and that is that the world is ruled by dark powers, but Jesus has overcome the world. The world is ruled by dark powers, but Jesus has overcome the world. So let's start first with looking at the world we live in uh, and looking at this passage through uh, the lens of our disenchanted world. I'm taking that term, disenchanted world, from there's this big, thick, scholarly book you're supposed to read if you're a theologian called, uh, called A Secular Age by Charles Taylor. And um, one of the big points that he makes in this book is that the bi one of the biggest differences between our world, the world we live in, and how we see things and the way our, the people saw things just a few hundred years ago, up till just a few hundred years ago, uh, is that um, we used to believe that the world was an enchanted place. That uh, the idea of heaven, God, Satan, angels, demons, uh, and of course also sprites, pixies, fairies, uh, uh, and amulets, the evil eye, Catholic relics, you know, that all kind of went together in the worldview was... Uh, Inter, the, that, those, that those supernatural forces just interpenetrated our world like water into a full sponge. Uh, and, and you were consistently surrounded by these forces, and they had real access, not just to your environment, but to your person. Uh, of course, we don't believe that anymore, right? We believe in a disenchanted world. We don't believe in it practically anyways. We might all affirm 
You know, you might all check the right box if you were to be given a theology test. Yes, Satan's a person. Yes, there are demons. But it doesn't really affect us in any real way, right? It's, um, there's a hard wall between us and the spiritual world. It doesn't, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't have any relevance for our life. It's somewhere far, far away. I had a friend once who, like, had this, you know, this thing about God where he felt distant from God, and when I, we got down to it, it was because he believed that God was like, he existed like spatially, like far off in some other galaxy, and that his prayers were like this weak radio signal that, you know, barely if made it to God, if they made it at all. The whole idea of the supernatural world was something so far removed uh, that it didn't have any bearing on life. That's the world that we live in. And most people think this started around the Renaissance and like kind of hit big in 1800s, but it started really a lot earlier than that. It started uh, even all the way back to St. Augustine. Prior to the 4th century, prior to St. Augustine, everybody, the Jews, Second Temple Judaism, uh, the, uh, the early church fathers, the early church, first 300 years, first three centuries, everybody held to the sci-fi supernatural heavy metal view of Genesis 6. Hybrid human angel giant mutants, right? <laughs> Isn't that just awesome just to say it? You just get shivers thinking about how, how, how crazy that would have been, right? And the, and the I, you know, a, a, the church would have become respectable. It's trying to find its place in the world. Augustine is like a spokesman, you know, trying to, uh, you know, explain what Christianity is to the, to the crumbling Roman Empire. And he comes up with the view that in this passage, the sons of God are uh, literally the, the physical sons of Seth, the godly line that come out of Adam and Eve, right? You remember the story, Adam and Eve have Cain, Abel. Cain kills Abel. Cain goes off to start the ungodly line. Adam and Eve have another child, Seth, and he starts the godly line in the pre-diluvial world. And so they, Augustine said, look, this makes more sense to think that the sons of God were Seth, the Sethites, the sons of the good guys, and what they were doing was intermarrying, with forbidden intermarriage with the daughters of Cain, who were the bad guys, thus corrupting everybody. Everybody got corrupted the world got so evil that God had to step in and hit the redo button, right? Now, this has great explanatory power if you're talking to your Uncle Bob the skeptic at Thanksgiving dinner and you want to make Christianity seem reasonable. And so at all that pressure, Uncle Bob would be like, yeah, that makes total sense, right? However, problem, almost all of that is totally read into the text. Those, they're, they're clearly given two categories. The sons of God are not the men in the picture. Uh, and the, the Nephilim are something quite different. Uh, the sons of God uh, are, are, are different. And it says, it says the daughters of men. It's talking about all daughters of all men, not just Cain. And so it's something that we read, that it was read into the text to make it make more more sense uh, in, a, in a, even the, the very nascent beginnings of the skeptical age. Another scholar named Meredith Klein, and this guy, Meredith Klein, is kind of like a hero to a lot of us. We are secretly training you to be Kleinian reformed theologians without telling you about it, okay? So, heads up. Uh, we, a lot of his insights have been remarkable, bringing forth the beauty uh, and the power and the majesty of God and the greatness of this story. Meredith Klein came up with this much better view, right? Uh, taking the whole storyline of Genesis uh, 3, the fall of man through Genesis 6, and putting it all together, he came up with the idea uh, that the sons of God were evil human kings who were taking harems from themselves amongst all the women of the earth, and these evil human kings were corrupting the earth uh, so badly that God had to hit the redo button, okay? Now, 
this also has a ton of explanatory power. You know, what do we know? There's, there, ancient Near Eastern kings loved nothing better than to claim that they were descended from the gods. They, had, they, had, they were divine children of the gods, right? The, the Egyptian pharaohs, all the Mesopotamian kings, they all did it. They all claimed to be sons of the gods, so that lines up. We also see in the trajectory of, of the first part of Genesis, uh, there's, right after the fall, there's a story of a man named Lamech who is portrayed as like one of the first kings in the Bible. And we see him doing three things. We see him corrupting the kingship rule that God has given to him by rebelling against God. We see him corrupting the concept of marriage by taking to himself more than one wife. And we see him corrupting uh, the concepts of law that God had given. Uh, and so Meredith Klein saw that. He saw, here's the beginning of a king, an evil king, who's corrupting his role as God's priest, king, overseeing and ruling the earth as, you know, underneath God, as God's pinnacle of creation. He's corrupted all that. And what we see in Genesis 6 is 10 generations later, well, that corruption just grew and snowballed through the entire ancient world to the point where all the kings of the world were so corrupt and they corrupted the same three things. They corrupted kingship. They were no longer uh, subservient. They were no longer worshiping God. They were rebelling from God. They were uh, literally killing off God's people. They were, had corrupted marriage. They were taking all these women to themselves in these harems and they, corrupted, uh, they were corrupting law and the legal system. He says, same thing in the acorn form here, snowballs through 10 generations. And here we have it, Genesis 6, evil human kings claiming to be descendant of the gods, although they're not, uh, taking, uh, corrupting all of those areas of, of kingship. And that's why God hit the reset button. Uh, you know, and then Genesis 6-5 says that the evil that God punished was the evil of men, not angels. And then we, you know, think about angels are spirit beings. And how does a spirit being actually, like, get together with uh, women, human women, and how, do they, how would they create babies? That's not even in the realm of possibility. I mean, you have to look at Meredith Klein's view and say, man, gosh, that makes a lot of sense especially to Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob would love this. He would be super impressed by your knowledge of the ancient Near Eastern world and Akkadian culture and kingship and uh, you know, suzerain treaties and blah, blah, blah. You would like super impressive to Uncle Bob at the Thanksgiving parties. You could be Christian and you could be seen as like intellectually like, uh, you know, together and you could be respected. Wow, you know, be a Christian and respected by your skeptic neighbors. What could be better than that? The view makes perfect sense, almost, <laughs> except for one or two pesky problems. <laughs> the biggest one is, the biggest one is this. <sighs> Man, I bought into this view for years. I was like, this is it. I want to impress Uncle Bob at Thanksgiving dinner. I want my relatives to think that my master's degree was worth something and that I'm like a respectable scholar. You know, I was like, oh, this is awesome. However, one of the primary rules of biblical interpretation is that the way that the apostles interpret the Old Testament is the right way to interpret the Old Testament. Why? Because the apostles were trained by Jesus uh, Jesus taught them how to interpret and see the Old Testament. They were also illuminated, enlightened, or inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the way the apostles interpret this text is the right way to interpret it. And what do we see in Peter? And what do we see in Jude? We see that these sons of God are high-level, powerful, spiritual beings who rebelled against God and are currently now held in chains in the underworld because of of their interaction with human women. <sighs> you know, on top of that, for the Meredith's view to work, you have to kind of take, you have to say that the sons of God and the Nephilim and the mighty men and the men of renown are all synonymous. They're all talking about the same guys. 
and it just doesn't really work. It's pretty clear they're given as different categories. And so when you look at it closer, as much as I want Uncle Bob to like think that I am the man, it falls apart. <laughs> it falls apart, you know? Why, you know, why do we, why do we, why, these views have so much power for us, even though there's some glaring defects in the argumentation. Why? Because we kind of skim right over that. Why? Because we live in a disenchanted world. And it's just out of the realm of possibility for us that angels and human women would ever, like, would ever be able to create a hybrid race of mutant giants. I mean, that's obviously, that's just, that's just science fiction. That's just anime. That could never really happen in the real world because we live in a disenchanted age and that age affects how we interpret the text. But the world that this text was written to was not a disenchanted age. The people who received this and the people who read this uh, lived in an enchanted world. The ancient world was an enchanted world. And that's second part here. Second part. Now, I love, let me confession. Uh, I love love, love, the idea of an enchanted world. Um, it, it, when, I was holding to the Meredith, when I was holding to Meredith's view, I was really sad. I was like, ah, that sucks. <laughs> I want it to be, you know, I want it to be giant mutant angel human hybrids. Um, but I had to, at the time, exegetically, allow the Bible and my best understanding of it to guide me, right? But confession, I love the idea of an enchanted world. I love, there's a book uh, C.S. Lewis wrote called the, uh, called the Discarded Image about what life with the worldview and the life of people in the medieval world was really like. And they saw like meaning, transcendent meaning and beauty and light and power in everything, like permeating creation. And it was beautiful. And I love that ideal, right? And I'm at home. I am doing my absolute best to create for my kids, let them grow up in a very enchanted world. I mean, we read all the stories. I mean, we make careful distinctions between pretend, uh, pretend enchantment and real enchantment. Uh, we make very clear distinctions between the stories, some of the stories that we read, but then we pull lessons out of those and say, now, how does this speak to the spiritual world we live in, right? I love the idea of that spiritual world, love everything about it, almost everything about it. Because the spiritual world, the enchanted world, is also necessarily a dangerous world. Uh, it is a danger where, uh, in the ancient world, the, the, the realm of the supernatural uh, was so interpenetrated into their world that you were constantly at the mercy of the gods. You could, at any given, at any moment, your crops could fail, plague could run through your city, uh, invading armies could come and kill everyone. Uh, you could be just whisked away by the gods for no good reason because they were capricious and violent. Uh, and it was a dangerous and scary and terrifying world to live in. Um, you were at the mercy of these powers that ruled the world. Everybody thought that way when this text was written. That's just the way the world was. So why is that important? It's important because that is ultimately the problem that this text is trying to address. What do I mean? Listen, listen to this. All, all, all the great Mesopotamian dynasties, the Sumerians, the Akkadians, uh, the Egyptians, uh, everybody in the ancient world, they all had these stories, right? And here's the short, let me give you the short version of the Akkadian version of the story. Uh, the Akkadian version says that there was a race of divine creatures who descended from heaven and they came to earth 
Uh, and they began to teach mankind civilization, farming, metallurgy, uh, woodworking, law, government, architecture, art, music. They were these great benefactors of mankind that created and gave all this beauty and the wealth of civilization to mankind, and they conferred upon mankind a divine right to rule. So the Sumerians, the Akkadians would say, we are have been given our right to rule the earth and to maintain this dynasty because of the gods who came down from heaven. Uh, these same divine creatures who came down from before the flood, they also mated with human women and created a divine race of hybrid giants. Isn't that amazing? Uh, who then wreaked havoc on the earth. Uh, some of these beings were then imprisoned by Marduk, the, the chief god of the Akkadians, in the underworld forever and ever until the judgment. Uh, but the basic idea or the basic attitude towards these divine beings was that they uh, have been given from them the divine right to rule. They have been given from them the beauty of civilization. Uh, and, and so, bottom line, these were the gods. And they were worthy to be worshipped and served, even if they were a little bit loked out. That's all there was. Uh, and everybody believed that. Everybody knew that story and everybody believed it, right? And listen, this, that same like basic storyline, then tr you can watch it travel down the corridors of history. Why, what did the Greeks believe? The Greeks believed that there were the Titans uh, who fathered the gods, and then they were cast and, and imprisoned in, in Greek Tartarus. And then their children, the gods, were the ones who like ruled the world and affected mankind, right? And that, I'm not even getting into what Peter says about this. Look up what Peter says about uh, the spirits uh, imprisoned in heaven because he basically tells the same story. And that's crazy, but um, there are these ideals that are prior to the flood and then they come down past the flood and they continue to influence people in the culture so that people believed that those were the gods and they were supposed to be worshipped and served because of what they had done for mankind. And so what is the point, right? Why is this, why does Genesis put this in the Bible? Is it just affirming like every like crazy Mesopotamian idea uh, about the gods? No. Genesis is written from the very beginning as a corrective to the corrupt ideas about God and the corrupt and wrong ideas that people had about God, about creation, about the meaning of life, about the meaning of evil. All of it, all of Genesis is polemic. Polemic means that it's like an attack on the prevailing ideas of the culture to give them the right understanding of God. We see, I mean, there are, you guys know this, right? There are texts, Sumerian texts uh, about creation and Sumerian texts about the flood narrative that have the figure of Noah and all these same details, and they predate Genesis by like a thousand years. You guys know this, right? That was one of the main things that like I was like, that was like the centerpiece of my argument against Christianity when I left the faith when I was 20 and I began to read against it. I was like, clearly the Bible is a derivative text of these more ancient texts, therefore the more older it is, the more valid, the more authentic, therefore the Bible can't be the last word. It's a corruption of the truer ancient texts. And so then I started along my merry way, you know, that led to ancient astronauts and alien astronauts and blah, 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 and, you know. <sighs> Anyways, <laughs> sorry. Here's the point. The reason the reason uh, that Moses put this in Genesis, this passage, is a polemic. It's a corrective against the current and popular understanding 
of the gods and of heaven and of the supernatural world. Everybody believed that the gods that ruled creation, or that ruled the world, that, that, that uh, was in control of their crops, of their life and death and all of that, everyone believed that those were the gods and they had to be worshipped and served. And Moses and the Spirit says, no, those gods are fallen, uh, divine, high-level Define divine creatures who have fallen to earth. They are not good. None of them. None of them are good. They are malevolent. And they have come to corrupt, to deceive, to destroy, and to lead you away from God. That's the point. We had a, a really good friend of ours, uh, mine, Brian and Pascal, a guy named Jody Patterson. I got sober with him. He, uh, he became a Christian for a little while, then he moved away, um, kind of fell back into some uh, pagan, his paganism. His future, he, was a, he was a serious, committed pagan. He became a Christian for a little bit, fell back into it, and he died. Uh, he died... Um, Young, and so we went to his funeral up in Fresno. We drove up and visited. Uh, we went. We went up to pay last respects, right? Having no idea what we were going to get into, but we went to the funeral service. Uh, and the funeral service was officiated. I'm not. This is like okay, The funeral service was officiated by a by a high priest of Thor, who began the ceremony with a Thor's hammer like invo invoking Thor to the four corners of the earth in like a legit pagan ritual. Uh, and then they went through like several other like pagan rituals, like invoking all of these other, you know, Norse gods, uh, you know, mythological gods. And everybody there was like so steeped in paganism and, and talking about like, you know, Jody and his paganism and like how the gods were like, you know, running their lives. And, and these people lived in a very enchanted world, but they lived in a very dangerous and enchanted world. And everything they believed about the gods was wrong. And we got to, everybody got, here's the point, everybody got to speak. And I hope I can remember this story uh, right. Uh, it came my turn to speak, and I stood up, and I was like, well, okay. <laughs> I was like, I've known Jody. I knew, I've known Jody for a long time. He had literally saved my life at one point, And... Um, and we had, we had a commonality, and that was this, uh, that we, all, we, we both believed in the gods, and, and it seemed to us that up until this point, they were trying to kill us, and everybody laughed. Uh, and then I started to talk about Jody's conversion, about how, and I told this story about how me and Jody were in Balboa Park, and we were talking about God, and we were talking about Jesus, and we were talking about how the whole world is set up to lie about who God is and to entrap people uh, in these errant beliefs about God. And it's all, it's all based on fear. And as I'm telling this story, not kidding, this squirrel, I look out of the corner of my eye, and there's this squirrel starts marching towards us. And I don't mean like timidly, not like... I mean, he's from like 50 yards away. He's coming at us like this. Uh, and he comes right up to us because he knew we had food. And he knew that we weren't going to kill him. And he knew or he believed that all the stuff that his little squirrel friends would tell him in the bushes about what humans do to squirrels was not true. And he knew that we had the bread of life in our hand and he was going to come and get it and walk through that fear and come and get f the bread of life. And Jody, we're talking about other stuff. Jody looks at the squirrel and he says, without missing a beat, he goes, oh, I get it. I need to be the squirrel. And I said, yes. Yes, you need to be the squirrel. Now, remember, this is a story I'm telling in a in a in a. In a Audio, in an auditorium with 500 pagans. And, uh, and I've prefaced it by saying, you know, I was, I prefaced it by saying, yeah, I got a hold of Jody. 
I was so excited because I had, I had accepted this certain ancient Near Eastern belief system about God, and in that system was the belief that there was a whole underlying echelon of lower gods who were in fact trying to kill us. And I was so excited to tell him that it was true, that they were trying to kill us. We weren't wrong, but I wanted to tell him something more, that that was an errant level, that there was another level of God who loved us and had the bread of life and wanted to give it to us. And all it took was us trusting him to do that. And, and Jody, and then I said, Jody came up with the best prayer I've ever heard. He said, God, I don't know you, uh, and I don't trust you, but I want to. Amen. On the spot. One of the best prayers I ever, ever heard in my life. And what's the point of the story is, my story was a polemic my story was I assumed like all kinds of cultural truth that these people believed about the pantheon of gods, uh, about their capricious and violent nature. They already knew all that. And then I inserted a polemic, a corrective. Those are the, those are the fallen ones. Those are the low level. You want to get above that level to the true and almighty God who loves you and has for you the bread of life. And that's I think that's what this story is trying to do. There's Israel, awash in a sea of pagan cultures who all believed these corrupt things about the God, and they were like, look, there's a lot of merit in what you're saying in these stories. However, you think these are good. You think these are the gods to be worshipped, but they're not. They're in rebellion against God. They're fallen creatures. They're not to be worshipped. Worship the true God. So what am I saying? What am I saying? Maybe you're asking yourself, so what are you, what are you saying about this, Rob? Uh, are you saying that these are angel-mutant hybrids? Maybe you're excited about that. Maybe you're not excited about that. Here's what I'm saying. According to Peter, according to Jude, according to the cultural context that this was written into, according to the exegesis of the text, the sons of God cannot be just evil human kings, but they have to be evil kings that are also somehow high-level divine beings that rebelled against God, procreated with human women, and created the Nephilim, which are in some way hybrid divine human offspring that wreaked havoc on the earth before the flood and after. Where am I getting that from? Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. We just kind of, we like pole vault right over this. For time. Every time we read it, we're like, I don't want to deal with that. And we move right along. But listen to what it says. There were Nephilim on the earth in those days and also afterwards. Uh, oh, so it's a continuing problem somehow. That sucks. <laughs> I want to compartmentalize this. Okay, God, handle that at the flood. We don't have to worry about this anymore, but that's not what the text says. So what is, before we get into to that, what does that mean for us today? What am I saying? Who are the Nephilim? My answer is, other than saying what I just said, somehow uh, the sons of God are evil kings and supernatural beings, um, we don't know. I don't really know. Listen, here's the spectrum. Bruce Waltke, great scholar, says these are evil human kings who are possessed by the spirits of uh, these high-level divine counsel, not just, not just you know, front and center infantry angelic orders, I mean high-level divine counsel, divine beings, part of God's entourage, um, possessed by that level of, of demonic creature. Uh, and then, but others say, well, look, we see angels showing up in human form all over the place in the Bible. They sit down and they have dinner with Abraham. Uh, you know, they, they come personally, you know, they, they just do a lot of things that 
don't fit into our boxes, and so, uh, you know, maybe it's in, they were somehow embodied. I don't know. It's somewhere in that range. But however they were, however they did it, the children of those unions were somehow physically uh, stronger, bigger, more powerful as a result of the divine influence. Now, that's that crazy talk? Yeah, that's total crazy talk for us. Now, angels are spirit beings. Jesus says that angels never marry. No, he says they don't marry in heaven in the new creation. He doesn't say they can't. Uh, no idea what angels can do. No idea what angels, what supernatural powers can do. But apparently they did something, uh, and the Nephilim roamed the earth. And so what does that do for us, man, besides being super awesome? Uh, <laughs> what it does is it, it, it brings the terror of the enchanted world home to us. Uh, it brings the ideal that these gods of death that roamed the earth before the flood somehow are still engaged in the world now uh, and they're encroaching in and there's real dark forces that rule. There are real dark forces that are the powers behind the powers of the earth and it's always been that way and it will be that way up until Jesus returns. If you go to the New Testament, Paul talks about thrones, dominions, powers, principalities. What are those? Hierarchies of angelic powers who are doing what? They are in control of nations, movements, institutions, the world, as John calls it. The world powers arrayed against God. To us, looks very, very human, and yet behind it, is a whole supernatural world of high-level spiritual beings that are still orchestrating these powers. Throughout all history, Jesus in Revelation says this is going to continue to happen all the way to the very, very end. And so, man, what do we do about that? That's scary. I mean, it's, it's scary to think about that. I want you to, like... Just for a second, like disengage yourself from all your theology and just think about a world that is interpenetrated by dark spiritual powers that are running and ruling and controlling and directing nations, all nations, all nations, institutions, movements on earth, and that we are at their mercy. I mean, Take everything you know about Jesus out of it for just a second and put yourself in the position of, of you know, someone from the, you know, the ancient world or our world now with that realization that the demonic, it's not a scary movie you see that you might have nightmares about. It's something that you literally walk through interdimensionally every day of your life. That's scary. That's super scary. But it's meant to show us, uh, uh, give us a better appreciation of what Jesus means when he says, I have overcome the world. Uh, and that's the last part. That's our last point. Jesus has overcome the world. You know, with as, as American Christians, we're Americans. Uh, everything is all about us, even our religion, even our ideas about salvation. And so really like the totality, of the, 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 or the entire spectrum of Jesus' work is, uh, you know, that, that, that he like personally saved us. And that's about as far as it really gets, right? Like God has just been waiting throughout all eternity, holding his breath just so he could get to the moment to save you. And now that it's done, we're good. It's kind of how we think, because we're because you're so special, right? We're also we're all raised to believe that we're all very special, right? And 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 you are, right? To God, 
you are all very, very special. And I'm not, what am I saying? Does Jesus love us? Yes, of course. Absolutely, Jesus loves us. Did he save you personally? Absolutely, he saved us personally. Did he save us by his blood on the cross, by being our sacrifice, by being our substitution, and taking our judgment upon us? Absolutely, he did. But it's, it's bigger than that. There's a bigger picture behind it. Um... And it's not captured when we think about Jesus as like Jesus, like, like the kind of gentle and ditzy hippie who's like walking the back streets of Tijuana with his disciples in a robe. We kind of lose that, you know, when we think about Jesus, the meditative guru who is just always calm, or the peaceful and very polite metrosexual Jesus who uh, doesn't offend to uh, all those images of Jesus doesn't really capture him. What captures him, is he gentle? Yes. Is he love? Yes. Is he kind? Yes. Is he gracious? Yes. He's all those things, but he is also the captain of angel armies. Uh, Jesus is the destroyer of evil forces. Jesus is the liberator. Listen. Let's listen real quick to all these verses. Ephesians 6, what's our problem? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Without Jesus, they would overrun you. Uh, John, uh, Jesus says in John 12, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people from, to myself. How is the ruler of the world cast out? When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, John presents the cross as like the enthronement of Jesus, where the battle takes place. That when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, that's where he does battle with the devil and defeats him and casts him out. Colossians 1 says, like we read earlier, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, Colossians 2 says that Jesus, by taking our sin upon himself on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What does that mean? Like I said in the reading of the gospel, the weapon that the forces of darkness that Satan has against us is our sin. He goes to God and says, look, they've broken your law. Your law says they must die. You must kill them. And I'll do it. I'll do it right now. And God says, I have an answer to that. Jesus dies on the cross taking the judgment that our sin deserved uh, so that God has passed judgment on sin uh, and we are given Jesus' righteousness. And that takes the weapon away from the dark powers against us. He disarmed Satan. He disarmed all of those powers arrayed against us through substitutionary, penal being our sacrifice on the cross. Uh, and 1 Corinthians 15 says, there's a day coming when the, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Revelation 19 says, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white. I think that's us. We're arrayed uh, following him on white horses. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And all of this comes out of the pictures laid down in the Exodus a long time ago, where it says, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, and the Lord is his name. Now, all that war talk probably makes you nervous. 
I, you know, at this, that's def, Uncle, Uncle Bob definitely would not, not be impressed by all the talk about Jesus, uh, the warrior, defeating the powers, the satanic powers that rule the world. And, um, but a lot of that comes from our disenchanted worldview. Um, we, you know, we see salvation as a, like a moral transaction, and that's it. We don't see salvation as a worldwide cosmic uh, assault on the powers of darkness that have rebelled against God and are in control of the world. But that's what Jesus has done. I, I think we're desensitized to it. We're desensitized, and we don't put the connection together between demonic powers and the suffering and violence and hardship and, and, and sadness in the world because we're desensitized to it, like people in war-torn countries become. They become desensitized to the level of violence and suffering that they live in, and so they don't really make that connection. And I think that's happened to us, so it's hard for us to get a grasp on this. Um, but this morning I woke up and, and read the news, and I thought to myself, Right now, in Kabul, in Afghanistan, there are thousands of people who helped American forces, who translated, who, who worked with Americans, who understand completely what this means, what the terror of an enchanted world means. They understand, and in concrete terms, what it means to have the gods of death encroaching upon them. Uh, and, and, and on the verge of being overwhelmed by that evil force. And that is our spiritual reality, or would be, were it not for Jesus, who is the destroyer of evil forces, who is the captain of angel armies, uh, who has saved us spiritually, morally, uh, but has also defeated all of these terrible powers uh, and brought us into a whole new kingdom of safety in life that we cannot be snatched out of. And that should give us a lot of peace. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beauty and grandeur of your word. It's truly bigger and more majestic and more f amazing and the greatest novels, the greatest fiction, the greatest movies that we can come up with. And that shouldn't surprise us, knowing that you are the God over all creation. And so, Lord, we thank you for giving us and showing us throughout the text uh, these correctives, these polemics, that much of what we buy into in the world, uh, much of what we worship in practical everyday life is part of of a system of demonic power that is meant to draw us away from you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us through this to see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus so that we would be as grateful as we ought to be for what he's done for us, so that we would have a clear and sober view of the cosmic reconciliation that's being worked uh, so that we would stay as close to him as we possibly can. And we pray that you would give us the power of the Spirit to do that, and that in and through that, we would be a light to the world so that others might come into that safety. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing uh, a song of meditation as we approach the Lord's table.